Welcome to episode 276 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was recorded on Sunday 20th of May 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Steve Silk. What a cool name that is. Uh, was a San Francisco bike courier in the late 1980s, which, if you don't mind me saying so, is the absolute epitome of cool. But then he forgot all about cycling as he forged a career as a BBC regional journalist. I'm Carlton Reed, and it turns out I've got lots in common with Steve, including starting at the same university in the same year. Also, living and canoeing, would you believe it, in Norfolk, and having an abiding interest in history. And it's our shared interest in the history of that most iconic of ancient highways, the Great North Road, that brought us together for today's recording. Sponsored, as always, by Jensen USA. Steve has written a travelogue about a bicycle journey along this road. And on today's show, we discuss the book and wax lyrical about sleepy coaching inns. As he's a BBC journalist, I also asked Steve about the corporation's recent forays into anti-cycling rhetoric. Yeah, OK, that was unfair of me because there are new rules on impartiality and social media that I know BBC employees have to follow. But check out how Steve handled my unsubtle prods anyway. Uh, Steve, can we get the Alan Partridge bit out of the way e- immediately? Because you must get this. I mean, any journalist uh, involved in either radio or TV in Norfolk, and especially Norwich, is going to get that. So how, how do you cope with the Alan Partridge question? Oh, God, I cope with it by... Uh... Having had it so many times, I've forgotten about it. I've genuinely <laughs> forgotten the link and I'm actually surprised when people mention it. Um, so, yes, I guess shrugged off with a bit of a laugh. People, I'm not from Norfolk, which I think perhaps helps here. I think occasionally some people in Norfolk, perhaps in the old days, used to get a little bit offended by that. Whereas, of course, the what we should actually do is is champion Alan Partridge and make the most of it and enjoy the fact that there's a whacking great picture of him talking about an owl sanctuary in the Norwich Waterstones and just (laughs) take him to our heart. That's the spirit, I think. So you've landed in Norwich because you were from Maidenhead originally, yes? Yes, a long time ago. Yes, yes. I landed in uh, Norwich very accidentally. Um, I'm a, a journalist and I was working in the northeast uh, and suddenly a job came up in the on the evening news an awfully long time ago. And I thought that'll that'll get me halfway to London, um, which was my plan then. And so I arrived here in the mid 90s and have come and gone since. Um, but yes, Norwich is, is very much an adopted home rather than me having any proper roots here. 
So we have gone in slightly different directions here in that I went to Norwich from Newcastle. Oh, and, really? And kind of, so you, you've, because you went to university in Newcastle and, and I, after reading your book, I discovered you, you joined the university at exactly the same year. So we both landed in Newcastle University in, in 1986. So what did you read? I read history at Newcastle and I really enjoyed doing that. But my passion when I was at Newcastle was the uh, student newspaper. So I probably spent about twice as much time on the newspaper courier as I did doing my studies. Um, And I think that was actually, whilst I still obviously love history, which I hope comes across from the book, um, I used uni as a really good foundation for for the career that I've had since. And I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed being a uh, uh, my own style of cub reporter, making goodness knows the most basic mistakes, but doing them with from the comfort and the safety net of a student newspaper rather than uh, a real one. But I wanted to go to Newcastle from Maidenhead. I mean, they, they are very different places, you know, Thames Valley, South, um, I, I really wanted to go up north to escape. T- uh, the minute I went to Newcastle for the first time. I absolutely uh, fell in love with the place. My daughter is a student there now, and I don't need any excuse to go up and, uh, you know, buy her a meal or walk on Hadrian's Wall as we were doing this time last weekend. Um, I still love the city and uh, love the surrounding area. So yes, going through Newcastle and Northumberland was an undoubted highlight of, of my trip. So we've absolutely got tons in, in common here. It's almost amazing that we haven't uh, probably met and we haven't come across each other a huge amount previously uh, because uh, the history angle is absolutely right up my street so i did enjoy your book from that that, that the many uh, historical angles in there and also uh, i've got to say the coaching in angle i love because that's what i love about the great north road is these fantastic coaching inns so you didn't stay in the 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 bell at stilton which i did recently but you did stay in the george at stamford is that right no i didn't stay at the george at stamford um i i what did i do there i think i had a coffee there i've been i've been to all these places uh, several times but no i didn't stay i mean one thing actually is just the cost of them they're all gorgeous inns aren't they and they're they're probably going to cost you if you uh, i i couldn't tell you a, a figure for the george but you're probably talking a good 100 150 quid a night and at, at times 10 um that was slightly mm-hmm. within the budget that had been agreed with mrs silk in advance so um i was taking the cheapo view that uh you know a nice two pound 80 flat white from all of these places was a was a more cost effective of way of experiencing the ambience without necessarily staying the night but one day you know if i did this again and i don't rule out doing the whole bike ride again that would be the way to go uh, the golden lion at uh, north allerton uh was the the one pucker coaching in that i i stayed the night in and that was because i just pitched up there at lunchtime and thought oh my god this is just great I, I can't be bothered to cycle anymore it was a sunday there was a nice sunday roast going change of plan stayed the night there and i'm, I'm very glad i did that mm. And then you mentioned again. This is the, 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 it's spooky. The, the the kind of things that were crossing. Uh, but I was at Beamish just recently, uh, the northeast oh, yes. like cultural museum, and I was also very much taken uh, by the concept of the recreation 
of a of a 17th, 18th century coaching in on site, which hasn't happened. But in, in your book, you mention this and it's like, yeah, that, that also piqued my interest. That, that'd be a fabulous place to stay because you can't stay at Beamish currently. But yeah, just to be able to go into a, a really ye old um, coaching, it would be fabulous. It really would. And the idea because I did have a, a chat with one of the senior guys there. He was talking about how they would try to recreate the beer from the past and the meals in the past, and there'd be someone in the corner on the Northumbrian pipes. It does, does it just does sound magnificent, doesn't it? Um, as I understand it, it's all on hold. I'm not entirely sure what the latest situation is there, but I do think that at some point uh, that that vision has to be created. And of course, they've had loads of problems as lots of companies and museums have as far as COVID is concerned. So hopefully it's just a case of that plan being on hold rather than being uh, abandoned forever. I mean, Beamish, let's just say, is a magnificent museum in its own right already, isn't it? It's got so much. I just love their approach to things. When I was um, hanging around waiting um, to speak to someone there, uh, which I, you know, turned up with my notepad as a as a as a writer, so to speak, rather than as a paying punter on that occasion. There were people bringing their, you know, grandma's old record player or whatever it was in, and their attitude is, "We will take everything. We're not going to be sniffy about what's out there and what we decide is history and what we decide is an artifact or not. If you think it's worth it, we'll have it." That's such a refreshing approach, isn't it? I've got all the mm-hmm. time in the world for Beamish. I think they're doing a super job. Mm, mm, yeah, I, I love the place. Um, so Coaching Inn's Great North Road, it almost has a flavour of like a, a kind of like a pre-Brexit fantasy of, as I said before, like the ye old England. So is there a danger that we're kind of recreating a past that perhaps never actually existed, you know, like Spitfires, warm beer, how much of the, of, of the writing of your book do you think is is kind of going into that for kind of 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 Englishness that perhaps isn't really true? Well, I'd argue with Englishness because this is a book that covers England and Scotland. Um, so you've got to have that in mind as well so i it can be it's a i guess it's a british book rather than an english book um when it comes to brexit i'm a serving bbc journalist so i will stay absolutely on the fence when it comes to that big and controversial issue of our times but yes i am i am probably guilty of romanticizing uh the past to some extent um and you know what? I've got form for that. Um, a previous book that I've written uh, looks at the the wherries of, which is a, a an ancient cargo boat of the Norfolk Broads. And I can't help myself, perhaps, from talking about how these guys operated in the past and perhaps having some rose-tinted spectacles on there, whereas the reality was they were probably the HGV drivers of their day, as were uh, coaching uh, coach drivers to a certain extent. Life was tough. Um, safety standards were probably non-existent, all the rest of it. So yes, pretty much guilty as charged, Carlton. Mm. Mm. And Charles Harp, I mean, many people on here won't have heard of him, but he's important to me. He's clearly important to to you because of what he did 
uh, back when he did it. And as you say, there's no biographies. You can't find out exactly uh, his life story. But he was a cyclist. Oh, he, he became, he almost became like you in that he was, he, he became a cyclist later in life and uh, he did it for u- utilitarian reasons because he was researching all his great road books. So he didn't just do the Great North Road, he did all sorts of the, the great highways of of Britain. But he did it from a, a bicycle saddle. But then, of course, his books came out uh, in later editions when motoring had taken over. So tell us a little bit about uh, what you have garnered about uh, this cycle tourist who became a, a motoring tourist. So Charles Harper is a Londoner who started as an illustrator, but quickly uh, developed a taste for writing books as well and started off by writing histories or travelogues of the shorter coaching uh, routes out of London, mostly to the south coast. So London to Brighton, London to Hastings, London to Portsmouth. And for that, he could walk because uh, the distances weren't too involved. If you think I'm bad at romanticising the past, Mr. Harper really goes for it. Um, and the interesting thing about him, and I think it's a, an era that we forget about now, is that there was this great coaching era that lasted till 1830, 1830s. And then you've got the, the, the motor car doesn't really come along until after the First World War uh, in terms of becoming um, a, a mass uh, means of transport. And in that intervening best part of a century, roads go become unfashionable. The railways take over. So as far as Harper was concerned, he was writing a history of these roads that were in inevitable decline. And that mm shapes how he writes about things um, and I think is why he's so fascinating for us now because at least in those first editions he in no way predicted that um, all of these coaching inns were going to get a second wind for example they were saved by the motor car a lot weren't saved but many were so that by the time uh, his second edition came along he was actually able to report that various uh, inns had reopened so he is i find him fascinating he's very old he's very of his time he's you can't call him old-fashioned but he's a he's probably slightly curmudgeonly old so and so he was certainly very conservative um in his views um but he writes beautifully and descriptively about what he saw along that road very much a southern english view of the world once he gets past about Grantham you can feel him start to become a bit uncomfortable he was very uh critical stroke snobby of anything to do with coal mines for example coal mines yes he didn't like coal mines did he <laughs> he really didn't like anything that wasn't a majestic old highway of old anything industrial and of course um the road was still being used and certainly went through many a pit village along the way you could almost you can almost see him recoil in horror at some of the um, cottages that people were living in, etc., etc. But he is a very good eyewitness of that time at the start of the last century. And as well as being an eyewitness in terms of what he says, his illustrations, um, albeit perhaps mm. um, slightly sanitised, are also really valuable. Um, and they are uh, used now by Heritage England as a resource to sort of illustrate what Britain looked like uh, before 
development around town centres before bypasses. And as such, I think he's quite an important um, eyewitness to history of that period of, of England and Scotland, basically. Mm. Now, in your book, you, you do say, and in, in the press release, it, it, it says that uh, this is a route that other people could follow. But we actually, if you look at the maps, th- this is this. It's a tough route because you have got long stretches where it is the A1M is the original route. It has been built over uh, the old Great North Road, um, so it would be quite difficult to 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 follow uh, an exact route. So even you have had to. You've had to meander, haven't you? you? You can't follow the whole thing from from St. Paul's Cathedral all the way to Edinburgh. You, you've got to, your life is too valuable, basically. Yes, you cannot go on the A1M by law. You would not want to go on the A1 not M out of choice. You are able to go through town centres and the approaches in and out of lots of town centres that were the Great North Road in the old days. And there are plenty of other short segments that if you're uh, dogged enough with your research, you can find. But in another way, I wouldn't describe it as a difficult route in that I find that when these new cycling projects, trails, etc. are set up, quite often they're really challenging in terms of gradient. Um, What I've done, I I am not a hardcore cyclist. I am a cyclist who likes to go from A to B to C to D rather than round in a circle because I just like the sense of adventure. But I don't necessarily want to do 3,000 feet of ascent a day. I want to have a coffee. I want to have a nice lunch in the market square. And if there's a, a stuffy old museum that no one else is in in the afternoon, I'll stop off there for an afternoon for an hour as well. So I'm the sort of guy that doesn't want things to be really tough in terms of the cycling. I just want to see see a bit of this country. So there's different senses of what difficult means, aren't there? Um, I do... In my mind's eye, I do wonder if we really could create a Great North Road cycling route that would roughly do what I did, ironing out some of the mistakes. Uh, but I guess that's probably pie in the sky at the moment. There's one There's one place where this really got me as I was cycling north. On the approach to Stilton in Cambridgeshire, Stilton has a high street that is now marooned from the A1M next to it, so that you have to approach Stilton from the north, then go south to go down its magnificent high street uh, with uh, the bell that's one of my, certainly in my top five great coaching inns of the entire route. I would love instead that on that approach road from the south, they just put a bridge across the A1 there. And then we as cyclists could enjoy that as it was meant to be. And I'm sure that would be of massive use to local people as well. So yes, I'm asking for the moon, aren't I? I'm, I'm, I'm wanting the government to invest in uh, a bridge here or an underpass there. I guess it's not mm. going to happen, is it? But I think that it, it, it would be, I think there is so much enjoyment to be had from whipping through uh, this 400 mile stretch of England and Scotland without having to be a hardcore lycra clad cyclist you could just do it relatively gently with a bit of help 
because it's a, obviously it's a very very historic journey, and yet most cycleways, most kind of like guided uh, cycle routes uh, in the UK do tend to be. I mean, I'm generalising massively here, but do tend to be east west west east rather than you know north south. There's there's there's, there's very little that actually does follow. So you, you couldn't get the Sustrans Great North Road route in effect. So you're saying that could potentially be something that could happen. Well, look, I, yes, I, I think so, because I loved it. And I, I quite like the idea of connecting up various unfashionable parts of the country as well. And I think I was coming at it from the point of view of I'd recently done a 100 mile bike ride around Norfolk the first time I'd done one of those. And I was thinking, right, what's next? But I would never do uh, Land's End to John O'Groats. That just, that, the whole aura around that just just isn't me. Whereas the idea of doing London to Edinburgh is is sort of nicely pitched in the middle there with the um, added advantage of two great cities at either end. Uh, so I just think it's got something going for it. Yeah, I would love to see mm. that happen, even if it didn't, if, even if it took 20 years. Certainly what was happening, and I could see uh, in front of my very eyes, was that I think even if I'd done this trip 10 years ago, there would have been fewer cycle paths. I was, to some extent, I planned it by, I never need any excuse to buy maps. So I'd, I'd, I'd planned what I could. But to another, to other, another parts, I was having to make it up as I went along. And quite often there was a what looked like quite a recent cycle path in quite a useful place so britain is undoubtedly getting more bike friendly year by year almost month by month isn't it well on the on the barnet bypass which is a you know south mims uh, basically the, the the service station there there's a stretch of the old a1 as the barnet bypass uh, uh, did, did take over there and that's a, a stretch of road that has been, as you say, marooned. Uh, it's no longer part of the, the motorway at all, obviously. Um, and that's got a 1930s cycleway right next to it. Ah, uh, and, and this then, is your big passion, isn't it? Right. I haven't seen that. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So, so I've discovered, I mean, I discovered that just literally just uh, about a month ago and, and went to have a look when I went and did my, my great novel. And then, I, I, so you took a bicycle. I actually took a car, which is, which is a, a crazy thing for me to do which is cheating carlton let's face it It, exactly as you don't even know the hills are there because you've got a a fast (laughs) sports car to do it uh but i took i asked morgan to supply me a car and and wonderfully they did so i i I put a brompton in my uh passenger seat and and took a morgan and did much of the same journey as you but obviously had a much much (laughs) easier time of it but then when i was driving along the a1 where, where it's not a1m there's lots of bits that I'm looking, and I know that I kind of probably see cycleways, 1930 cycleways, where they perhaps don't even exist. But I did see lots of um, bits that looked, you know, period. So they they did put an awful lot of, of cycleways down next to the A1. So I don't think anybody would want to cycle on those bits. But technically, there are lots of bits of the road which you could probably connect up, and you could create a route. Um, and then it'd be a historic route, and it wouldn't be Land's End to John O'Groats. You're right. Uh, it would be this historic north-south or south-north route, which which is c- clearly the reason you've written the book is is because that's incredibly historic. And and we're we're ignoring that by doing these uh, routes that are more meandering, but not quite as important. Absolutely. But what I'd add to that is that if there if the alternative to doing a mile, two miles 
directly alongside, but safely alongside the current A1. If the alternative to that was a massive meander that took you 10 miles out of your way because there simply isn't an alternative, then I'd be happy to do that. And and indeed, I did do that on um, one or two parts during the book. So I think as a means of just connecting somewhere safe to somewhere else safe, that where there was some sort of separation between you and the traffic, I think that would work perfectly well. So, mm. and, and of course, your 1930s um, cycleways, are them, which I hadn't heard of until uh, you brought them to my attention, are themselves historic, aren't they? So you could argue that's, mm. that's actually adding to the history of the Great North Road. It's a, it's a 1930s slice of history there just waiting to be rediscovered. Mm. There's a slice up in Durham, which I know you, you I'm reckoning you must have diverted away from the road at this point because uh, you in your book, you, you went, actually went into Durham, where, of course, yes. the, the Great North Road or certainly the A1 of the 1920s uh, uh, didn't go there. But there's one stretch, uh, which is actually the original um, 1930 cycleway that, that I first discovered and first realised was w- what was going on here. And that's uh, uh, just outside uh, uh, Durham. And there's a beautiful one-mile stretch of former A1. It, there used to be a, a service station there called the Cock of the North. Yes, uh, oh, I know now, exactly where you are. Yes. It's such a shame there isn't a Cock of the North pub there either anymore. I know. Well, it's just a housing estate now. That's right. And yeah. They, <laughs> they haven't called it Cock of the North uh, housing estate. But that would that that cycleway that was put in on the Great North Road uh, back in 1937 probably didn't get a great deal of use back then. But we'll get used now because it's a housing set. Anyway, we're, 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 we're diverting away from your book a bit here. So the book is out in uh, in July, July the 8th. Is that right? That's correct. July the 8th. So it's Summersdale uh, is the the, uh, the publishing house. Uh, I've got a, a pre-publication, uncorrected uh, book proof here in front of me. So I, I read it all yesterday. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why I read it yesterday. I had my second jab yesterday. I had other things to do I was going to be doing, uh, but I was feeling a bit under the weather. And I just sat down uh, in the kitchen with my dog and just uh, read the whole thing from 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 start to finish. So so in one sitting. So I, I, I immensely enjoyed your book and, and, and people who get to see it, get to read it in on July the 8th will will enjoy it, too. Now, in the book, uh, I think you come across uh, either deliberately or or maybe not deliberately, as somebody who's um, almost a beginner cyclist, because you're making like rookie mistakes, like you're, like you're not eating correctly. So you're talking about the, the, you know, the, the cyclist bonk. You're talking about going into a bike shop at one point and having to Im- get emergency um, chamois cream, for instance. Again, like another rookie mistake. Yet, as you've said, you, you've, you've done 100-mile rides in Norfolk, and now I want you to tell away from the book. I want now I want you to tell me about your your student days when you were, in effect, a hardcore cyclist because you were on Michelin Sixth in San Francisco, delivering packages uh, as a bicycle messenger in I mean the most romantic place you could possibly be a, a bike messenger in the nineteen eighties apart from maybe London or New York I mean, San Francisco just wonderful place to do it so you were hardcore cyclist Steve. well you say that it it, it it does sound really cool now doesn't it but I didn't I genuinely didn't see it like that at the time and I didn't see that I was going there to be a cyclist it was a couple of other mates from Newcastle Uni we. We ditched in the day job that was at some sort of summer camp 
we'd got our visas and we thought, right, sod it, let's take a car across America. So we were just being classic students with us with three or four months of summer in front of us. And we did one of those drive away things where you drive a car from uh, east to west for someone who's moving. And then we just all three of us pitched up in San Francisco. And by complete luck, not because I was this hardcore bike geezer at all, I ended up as a cyclist, as a cycle messenger, um, delivering what we would now call JPEGs uh, or emails. <laughs> um, mm. And it was uh, it was fantastic. And I've never been fitter in all my life. But mm-hmm. I, I see what you're saying. You're saying, well, how's this guy who, who had this um, seemingly really cool job and knows all about cycling? How is he making rookie errors all these years later? Well, one, it was just one hell of a summer summer. Uh, two, I then forgot about cycling. I cannot explain or justify this for about 20 years until picking up a bike again. Oh, I don't know how old I was, 45 or something. And it's only in the last 10 years that I've just started messing about on a bike again. And even when you do that and I go out, we religiously, four, five, six of us go out on a Saturday morning here in my village in Norfolk. Even then, we're only just having a laugh. I'm not someone who's ever been part of a of a of a cycling club. Um, yes, there's a bit of lycra now because you end up with it, don't you? But I've never done anything more serious. So those rookie errors are, let me tell you, absolutely genuine. There is no, um, there is no, uh, um, there is no way that I've exaggerated that at all. These things happened because I was just learning as I went. And the, the the bike shop very kindly allowed you to 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 smother it upstairs. Uh, oh God! I mean, yes. it, it sounded as though it was a room that was just basically an open room. It didn't sound as though they said go to the toilet or anything. You just upstairs no. in this bike shop. Oh, do we have to do this bit? But yes, um, <laughs> it's a very small, lovely, lovely uh, bike shop in in a one in a yard in Darlington upstairs was sort of had more of the air of a sort of semi storeroom <laughs> um, feel to it. Um, and yes, I, uh, I applied my new purchase up there and I instantly benefited. Please let's move on before there's any more detail about that for <laughs> your poor listeners. Well, it, it's, it's going to be cute for, because the people who are going to be buying this book aren't going to be hardcore scientists. I'm assuming it, it's more of a, it's a, it's a travelogue um that a general interest is going to people you don't have to be a cyclist to buy this book is what i'm trying to say and these absolutely. things will be probably that's, be that's the way I'm that coming I'm... at it yeah the bike just happens to be the best method yes. of exploring this road yes so people are going to find they're going to find this incredibly uh, funny because this is an alien world uh to, to most people who are going to be reading this book about you put what and you put it where i didn't know this <laughs> So those are the kind of anecdotes that jumped out at me because I find this completely normal, but other people are going to go, uh, what? I've never heard of this stuff before. I guess so. I guess so. And the other thing you, you just mentioned on is the word bonking, which we must explain to non-cyclists <laughs> means when you absolutely run out of energy and you almost collapse on the roadside which is what happened to me just north of Grantham that's the other one where I it wasn't that I hadn't heard of that I heard, had heard of it as a concept that cyclists run out of fuel mm-hmm. um, 
It's just that I was learning as I went on exactly how much fuel I need to keep going. And I use the word fuel advisedly. It doesn't become food anymore, does it? Um, I have Mm. just come back, three mates and myself, from doing three grueling days um, in mid-Wales on the Trans-Cambrian Way on a guided um, route uh, with a group called MTB Wales, who are magnificent, by the way. And I'd learnt my lesson from from the Great North Road and all the time going up these ridiculously uh, steep mountains and hillsides in Wales, I was just eating flapjack. I didn't want to eat flapjack. I wasn't even hungry, but I knew that if I didn't eat stuff now, I was really going to suffer in an hour and a half's time. So from that point of view, um, I have I have learnt since. But yes, that's something that you do need to know about, don't you? But I, I guess even if you've heard of the concept, you don't know exactly how much fuel you as an individual will need if it's day four when you've done 55 miles the previous day and decent mileages uh, the previous two as well. Mm. Now, I noted before that when we mentioned the, the, the nasty B word, uh, or maybe the lovely B word, depending on your your point of view, uh, you, you didn't want to get into politics because of your your, your BBC uh, employment. But if you don't mind, and, and, and let's see how far we can, <laughs> how far I can push you here. It, um, the BBC does get a lot of stick at the moment for introducing what, in effect, are anti-cycling. Uh, uh, topics uh, and that can be local and it can be national it can be on 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 you know r- r- you know like mainstream you know radio programs where they'll they'll mention stuff which does tend to uh buy into the concept of you know britain not being that much of a a, a positive cycling nation so what kind of feedback have you had from your colleagues about the fact that you are, I'm using air quotes here, a mammal. I would say that my colleagues just know that Steve's a cyclist. They know that if he's come back off a week away, it would be a good thing to say, where have you been on your bike then, Steve? That That's, that's the level of it. There's no uh, opposition to it. There's nothing that's particularly pro it. It's just a thing they know that, 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 that I do. Um, I I still think that steering clear of the BBC, as I will consistently throughout this interview, um, I still think that, that Britain is getting better. I live on the outskirts of Norwich. Norwich has uh, introduced a lot of uh, new cycling paraphernalia just over the recent two or three years or so. I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. But I, I am going to, because it is the day job and because I have to be really, really careful when it comes to any, any of the politics around that, I'm afraid you, you're you not going to tempt me at all. I understand that, but I'm going to carry on. <laughs> I'm going to try, I'm, I'm going I'm to poke you. Um, and it's not because at the end, this is, I want to talk about this and, and not your book, but just it, it is interesting because the, the whole cultural woke agenda or anti-woke agenda does very often use cycling as as a as a as something to really really go at because it does goad some people. So you and Lycra, uh, benign. Me and Lycra, benign. A, a granny on a bike, benign. And yet, mainstream media does seem to recognise that by mentioning the word cyclist, it does. You know, it does touch a lot of buttons, and that's not a BBC thing. That's just a, a mainstream media thing. Uh, 
So what can you do, if anything, to, to, to combat that, if, if you even want to combat that? I, I do agree with you that, that many's the time when I've had conversations even with my relatives and they're bemoaning the fact that they've been delayed by all of 20 seconds because there was a group of four cyclists um, in front of them on the B road. And I'm saying, yes, well, that could have been me. And for goodness sake, you know, I've got just as much right to the road as anyone else. So you're dead right that there's still a lot of opposition. I Within the last two or three months, I've had a situation where I gently, with my right hand, just said, with, with an up and down movement, asked someone to slow down as they sped past me. And mm. the response was an absolute foul-mouthed abuse by a driver who got out, reversed, came back looking for trouble. And that can be absolutely terrifying and completely over the top. So you're dead right. It's still absolutely out there, isn't it? Um, what we do as a group with the with the guys that I go out with every Saturday is we are obsequiously pleasant and thankful to every single motorist who even gives us the time of day. And we shout and we smile to every single passing dog walker. And we try to be personal ambassadors for it. I mean, we shouldn't have to, should we? But that's the stage I think we're at, that I go out of my way every stage to look motorists in the eye, smile, be humans, show that I am a human being and I'm just having a nice time on my bike. That's my personal approach. And that, I have to say, works quite well um, on the on the streets of Norfolk. Um, it's probably slightly more tricky in a big city. And do you think that this book, which doesn't mention cycling in the title, um, it doesn't really even make it uh, a big style into the into the subhead. It just says two wheels. Uh, do you think that potentially has a mollifying effect in that it's a travelogue? You just happen to be on a bicycle, and and people might just ever so slightly just think, oh, well, it's a it's a bike, it's a normal thing to do. Or do you think it's it's still seen as a uh, a quite a bizarre thing to be doing? I, I hadn't thought of that at all. So what? that's really interesting. I mean, the one thing I'd say about the cover of the book is that it features a bloke who is me on a bike. Uh, in the, it's an artist's impression. So it is clear that it's a cycling book from the, the – it might not be in the actual words, but it's clearly there in the, um, in the cover. Um, I hadn't seen it as playing any kind of ambassadorial role, perhaps because I'm not quite so – feel myself on the on the front line of changing opinions and any kind of culture war that's out there against cyclists which i i i think you're much more aware of um than i am but if it did well magnificent and i suppose i can see the logic of your point of view in that i am i am far from being hardcore in anything am i i'm open about my limitations as, as a cyclist and open about um the mistakes that i make so yes from that point of view perhaps i don't feel like i'm from a from a different planet which i think is sometimes the impression that you get certainly the uh the guy on this norfolk street that was effing and blinding at me a few weeks ago mm. just made it clear that he thought we were all well let's just say completely alien he was a uh, considerably less um, articulate in his use of words than that. But yes, if it could ha have a, a small impact, 
fantastic. So you hidden Riverside Norwich to go back to one of your other books where you're, where you're in effect, you're a canoeist. Um, you're an ist there. Um, uh, th- there's no conflict there because if you're a, you've got a canoe, you're not going to be holding up anybody apart from maybe. Um... Oh, I don't know. You can, okay, you, can you, with, <laughs> you can be in conflict with anglers and yes, landowners can be very, very fussy about it. Um, and my view on that is that if you're on the water, you, you, uh, you're you okay. That I don't think is the precise legal position everywhere. And, and I um, always do my best to to obey the laws of trespass, although it can be complicated and difficult and you can stray into... Uh, unintentionally into difficult areas so no there canoeists can get some can get some grief too i do i even when i said that i thought i shouldn't have said that because i i before i became a cyclist and i am that ist very much that ist uh i was a canoeist so i actually sold to get my first bike which i bought in norwich um in a, in a bike shop that was no longer there I sold my canoe. So I did an awful lot of, of canoeing on the Norfolk Broads, um, as many white water rapids as I could get in, in Norfolk, which wasn't that much. Um, <laughs> so I started as a canoeist doing an awful lot of the stuff that you've probably done in your in your books, sort of like a Hidden Riverside Norwich. So I've done tons of canoeing in, in Norwich, and it is a wonderful place to do it. But yes, you're right. I, I've now forgotten it. I've now blanked out all of that conflict that was there. I was, I was, it was almost like a four history that I've created for myself on, on the, the blissful canoeing when there was an enormous amount of conflict. And you're right, there's tons of trespass conflict with canoeing too. So it wasn't a very good analogy at all. I do apologize. But, but look, you're, you're, it's really interesting because you, you are defining yourself as an ist. I, again, I haven't mm. seen it like that before. I don't think I've ever seen myself as either a canoeist or a cyclist. I am just a bloke who does those things rather than uh, defining myself as them. So it, there's a subtle difference there, isn't there? This weekend, I might mm. want to go out on my canoe um Mm. because that's the nice way to get out and explore the countryside and switch off from work next week it might be a bike uh the following week it might be a you know 12 mile walk or something so yes i i I guess i'm not pigeonholing myself if that's is that the right term labeling myself quite as you see it but i hadn't even seen the difference till you described it like that See, I'm very guilty, obviously, uh, in my line of work, of pigeonholing myself. But then other people will will absolutely pigeonhole me, which is probably one of the reasons why I I, I did the Great North Road, not on a, a bicycle like you did it, but in a Morgan. So that when I do get attacked, I do get attacked on social media from 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 motorists who are like hardcore, then I can say, well, look, you know, I'm not this 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 pigeonhole uh person on a bicycle only i also use the form of transport you love too um so there's that kind of you know trying to not get pigeonholed is probably a good thing and and did it work with the morgan so far on social media i haven't really been attacked uh, but I, I was dallying in actually changing my profile on Twitter and all sorts to just me and a Morgan, just to, to see if it confuses people. Because obviously I am known as being ultra, ultra, ultra cyclist. Um, and I am. I, I, I can't get away from that fact. But that doesn't mean to say I can't enjoy other forms of, of, of transport too. And that is that we do get pigeonholed and people make assumptions about people that 
aren't always correct. Yes, absolutely. And it's only, uh, you know, a part of your life. You're on this form of transport and that form of transport. No, I, 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 I quite agree. I have to say, I, I only dabble in the, the paddling pool end of, of Twitter, but I, I've never had any bad experiences, which is, I guess, given that I have got a little cycling emoji there and I, all I talk about is Great North Road and a bit of cycling. I have to say, mm. I've been mercifully free of that and long may that continue. Mm. So let me just see then. So, so we know you were San Francisco cycle career, which is hardcore, uh, but we know that you went to a bike shop to put on um, uh, chamois cream uh, when you should have been having it right from the beginning. So that's a, a, a rookie era. So we, we know there's these two um, very di- different aspects of, of your uh, cyclist uh, life. But uh, do you do use a bicycle in any other parts of your life apart from going touring? So, for instance, you live in about 12 miles out of Norwich. Would you cycle to work, for instance? I, I have cycled to work, but I don't do it routinely. And... I probably should do. Um, I think if I live 12, 12 five miles to... is not too bad, Steve. Sorry? 12 miles is not too bad. It's, you know, it's... it's... No, it's not. It's perfectly doable. It's perfectly doable. Um, I, I think what I probably am moving towards is uh, cycling to... Um, sorry, driving towards the outskirts of Norwich and then having some kind of fold-up bike that I would then do the last... Um, two or three miles on I everyone's got an excuse haven't they but I quite often don't finish my working day till um, half past seven at night so for much of the year that means uh, coming home 12 miles in the dark which I don't quite fancy every day but Mm. hey look maybe that's a pathetic excuse I haven't I I, normally as you say I am a a leisure cyclist but with chucking in the odd uh, cycle to work journey in there as well Hmm. Uh, well, Steve, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I'm sure we could uh, reminisce about our Norfolk and Newcastle uh, backgrounds until the, 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 the cows came home. Uh, but let's find out uh, a bit more about your book. So if you can give us a website for, for the book, give us your Twitter handle and, um, and, and your, your, the publisher's details. So let's, let's get all that stuff on, on tape. Yes. So the best thing as far as the book is concerned is to go via the uh, Summersdale website or at Summersdale uh, on Twitter. Um, I have a personal uh, website that is greatnorthroad.info, but Twitter is the best way to keep in touch with what I'm about. And my handle for that is greatnorthroad and then the numeral two. Uh, the book comes out with Summersdale on July the 8th. Um, and it'll be available in a lot of the bookshops up and down the 400 mile length of the <laughs> A1, as well as all the other usual places. Thank you very much. And can I just ask, uh, who was Great North Road 1 or who was Great North Road? On Someone Twitter? who's got somebody about there 15 who's... followers and has only posted about twice. And it's very frustrating <laughs> that uh, that I haven't got it off him or her. Maybe I should try harder and do a do a deal there. Maybe offer them a, a couple of copies of the book and maybe I could we could swap handles. Thanks to Steve Silk there, and thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the-spokesmen.com. Now, 
I'm sure you don't need reminding, but it's the start of the Tour de France next week, and you'll soon hear some Grand Boucle bon mots from the spokesman regulars. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.